Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education at Monash University and here we talk with researchers in and around the faculty about their current reading, writing and thinking. So welcome to a new season of Meet the Education Researcher. My name is Neil Selwyn. I work in the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. And the aim of this podcast is simple. We spend 15 minutes or so getting to know what researchers in and around the faculty are currently up to. So today my guest is John Lochran, Dean of the Faculty, so clearly someone worth paying attention to. Good morning, John. Hey, Neil. Now, a nice easy start. You've researched a bunch of different topics and issues, but I mean, what would you say is the one big question that's driven your research and writing over the years? So just let me give you a little bit in the front end of this before I jump into that, Neil. I I think as an old science teacher that um, one of the things that's always concerned me is this thing about teaching and learning and, and the links between them. And so because I was in science, then the sort of content of teaching and learning has tended to be around science. But then coming to university, it it sort of lifts to another level. I think, if I answer your question properly, it's actually trying to differentiate between views of teaching and learning as transmission, you know, listening is learning, telling is teaching, and actually the development of understanding. And so I, I think my big question then is, you know, trying to separate those things and say, if you only think about teaching as transmission, you've got a problem. You actually have to think about teaching and learning in as a re- in a relationship, and and that's the big question. But it happened to be in science because that's where I came so from. So I'm really interested in how people's biography shapes what it is they research. So when you were a science teacher, did you see a lot of transmission? based teaching going on. I think I did a lot of transmission based (laughs) teaching. And then, you know, you have these experiences every now and again in your career where you see yourself doing things that are the antithesis of what you think you're trying to do. And so I, I think I've got that sort of view of the world because I saw myself doing things that surprised me that I was transmitting when I actually thought I was trying to teach for understanding, but but I clearly wasn't. Hence, then the research really gets at you because you start asking those questions of yourself and then you start asking them of the wider community. So I'm interested. I mean, I can imagine that transmission-based teaching was a big issue in the 70s and 80s. Is it still an issue in 2018? Yeah, I, I think it always is, actually, because it's a sort of default approach that people have. You know, teaching is sophisticated business, but sadly... Even a lot of teachers don't see it that way. They think they're a born teacher or, you know, you, you just have to know the curriculum in detail and you can deliver the information. So I, I think understanding teaching as sophisticated, complex, dynamic work is the, you know, the lever to opening it up so that you can really genuinely get at pedagogy, you know, the relationship mm. between teaching and learning. And teaching should influence learning, learning should influence teaching. So it, it's cracking that open is really the the key, I think. And you mentioned it taking you from science teaching into other areas. I mean, where have you found yourself researching? So when I found myself at university then, um, that's what opened up the world of reflective practice for me. And then because I was working in teacher education, it opened up the whole thing about teaching about teaching. So all of a sudden, you know, over time, you, you develop this idea that, that teaching itself is a discipline, just like science was you know you start to think well if it's a discipline what's the type of knowledge that's being created how's it able to be used what does it look like in practice how do you develop it and so for me then it's really starting to make teaching be more highly valued Mm. and seen as requiring not just technical skills but also highly sophisticated 
um, knowledge and development and, and recognising and valuing that. So in terms of, I mean, you've got concepts like knowledge and reflective practice. Mm-hmm. What sort of theories are you using to kind of lever those sorts of concepts into your work? Yes. Yeah, so when I um, discovered the work of Dewey, like, how does that happen that, it, you know, someone who wrote so well so long ago laid out a wonderful framework for mm. understanding um, reflection. And so happening upon some of those things opened my eyes to what reflection really meant. You know, you think, and this is what we do in education too much, we, we use language in very loose ways. And so reflection, you say reflection and people go, I know what that is. Well, actually, people don't really know what it yeah. is. They, they usually think about it as a musing over what happened yesterday. When you look at um, Dewey's work and he, he goes through his three attitudes, you know, that uh, a precursor to encouraging reflective practice. And then you look at his elements that make up what reflection really looks like. You go, this is actually complicated and serious stuff and it's not just I'm musing over yesterday and so then you get into the whole thing about uh, pre an event you know what what is it like to be in a pre-reflective phase what is it like post an event and then you know the real knowledge skill and teachers and why this stuff is so tacit is the contemporaneous and that is the big challenge and that's where teachers don't recognize what skill knowledge and abilities they really have so Dewey's really useful for making sense of how teachers do what they do. Correct. How do you research it? What methods and what kind of approaches does that lend itself to? So that becomes a really interesting issue, Neil, because when I was doing my PhD, I remember trying to think about how you do those things. And, and it was back in the day when we first started doing, you know, stimulated recall as one thing, but the other one then was um, getting involved in, in what now is called talk aloud protocols. But, but at the time... Uh, it, it wasn't that. It was it was actually trying to stop and start and, and get inside a teacher's head while they were teaching, and they were really difficult things. So so hence you, you started with stimulated recall, trying to get back into the experience. But over time, you actually started to get people to contemporaneously explain what mm. was going on while they were doing it. Really complex. I was going to say that sounds... Really confusing. <laughs> You've made it sound very easy. How on earth do you get someone to do that practically? You know, in the first instance, what you had to do was you had to develop a strong relationship with teachers who were prepared to trust that what you were doing was actually also helpful for them. Mm. So there's, you know, in many cases, good research is really good professional development as well. And in teaching, that's crucial because teachers are so used to people coming along and trying to use them as a data source and then move on. So in, in the work that I was doing, I found that working with teachers was not only beneficial to me, but it was highly beneficial to them. And in so doing, it opened up a whole world that taught me a bunch of things that I would never have come across had I just been trying to use them as, you know, pieces of data along the way. Yeah, yeah, this difference between researchers and the research. Yeah, yeah, yeah all that sort of now, stuff. Now, I wanted to talk to you about self-study in particular. Mm-hmm. This isn't something I'd actually come across before coming to a Faculty of Teacher Education. I'm not sure I still fully get it. So, I mean, can you talk me through what self-study is as a method and what it means to you? Okay, I'll try to do this in a succinct way, but it's difficult, Neil. Had I been someone who was influential at, at the time, I would never have used the language of self-study. Let me say that for a start. But, but really it emerged because in the early 90s, a lot of uh, particularly American doctoral students who were working as TAs for their professors were, were working in teacher education and were basically interested in understanding how their students learnt to teach. But their professors were researching on things rather than with. And so a lot of these 
young doctoral students found that the work they wanted to do wasn't valued by their mm. um, professors. And they were basically being told, don't waste your time in teacher education. Get ahead and get this strong career as a researcher. And if you waste your time in that, you won't have a career. And so they sort of came together um, arguing around, well, teacher education is just doing stuff to these prospective teachers. Actually, what needs to happen is that these prospective teachers need to understand teaching, like I was saying earlier, as a discipline and see their knowledge growth and everything. So the whole self-study thing was really reflection, action research, practitioner inquiry in teacher educators as they were trying to understand how did they learn to teach about teaching and how did their students learn about being and becoming and performing as a teacher. So it's all the professor's fault. Yeah, in one sense. And, and it is interesting now, nearly 30 years later, it has led, well, certainly in my career, it has led to the notion of pedagogy of teacher education, really powerful ways to recasting the nature of teacher education. And also then, what what is knowledge? And you get into some pretty interesting debates yeah, yeah, around yeah. that, you know. And I guess also as a method, it sounds like it's a doddle to do. I guess it's even harder to do than most other research, particularly writing these things up and crafting narratives. And Actually, it, ca it carries a number of problems. The first one is because of the language of self-study, it sounds like it's navel-gazing. Yeah. And therefore, you know, so long as I've got a story to tell, I've got, well, that's simply not good enough. And so there are a whole bunch of issues, like as in any research, you know, what makes it trustworthy, what makes it able to be used, what makes it public, what makes it um, a, a knowledge base from which you can, you can have action. And so things about self-study that matter is going beyond the self, having some form of critical friendship so that you get alternative views on what's going on. And then you, you think about a narrative, you know, how you actually even portray the learning becomes really, really yeah, important. Yeah. And so self-study is something that's a methodology, not a method. You can use many different ways and it's about what type of question are you asking, therefore what's the appropriate procedure that would help answer that question in a meaningful way rather than pulling in, oh, I do self-study and now here we go. Yeah. So I don't know if that explains it, but it's really if you think about reflective practice, if you think about action research, practitioner inquiry, it's how do teacher educators largely do that in understanding teaching and learning yeah, about no, those teaching. Yeah, there's really important distinctions to make. I mean, we've talked a lot about stuff you've done in the past. I'm mm. really interested about the future. I mean, is what's coming up for the long term? What's your kind of long-term plan for? So I have two things for the long term that um, drive what I think about. The first one is I, I feel as though in education we simply do not deliver the type of evidence that convinces the public that we know what we're doing beyond people having a good feel for what happens or, or or moving beyond their own experience of students. So I'm very keen now to be pursuing the types of data that would be compelling to people outside of teaching to understand that there are more things to measure and play with than what I think is usually superficial, just just the information of the curriculum. So that's one big deal. And so learning analytics becomes really important in, in opening doors for what it is that we might explore and then how we might portray it so it's compelling to and others. And teaching analytics and school analytics? I mean. So that you start to get into really interesting things around that then. Teaching needs to be much more highly valued, but it needs to be highly valued by teachers themselves. 
So what is it that allows them to have the professional autonomy to make decisions about how they function, how they operate and how to sell what they do in ways that demonstrate that they're a profession, they're not simply a public servant. And if that is the case, then how is what we do able to genuinely impact policy development and formulation rather than us being told because a politician spent their time in school, they now say, well, all schools should be like what I experienced. Actually, how do we move into the new world? And if you think about our digital age, which is is you, what would schools really look like? We've got an industrial model Mm. that actually is continually being challenged, but also being held because it's serving other purposes beyond education. So how do you crack those things open? That, you know, they are the big sort of thing. So there's there's three that I think are intertwined yeah, yeah. and that need to be um, explicated in ways that people understand why you're doing it. It's not just, you know, outside the box stuff. It's actually purposeful and it ought to be ways of demonstrating that teaching and learning are much, much more than just gaining information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's one thing. Yeah. <laughs> that's more than enough crack in the future. Yeah. I just wanted to talk to you about workload. Yeah. You're the dean of the faculty. Yeah. I guess you've got a fairly high admin load. Fairly, yeah. But you still seem to churn out books and projects and papers. So I mean, how on earth do you do that? So I think one of the things that's um, important, you can't do our job if you don't enjoy it. And, and so I think there is a thing about writing, there is a thing about um, ideas that are inevitably catalyzed by your interest in the field. And so for me, writing a book, writing a journal article, collaborating is about having an idea that I want to pursue. In some cases, it's about developing empirical evidence that goes with it. In other cases, it's about developing conceptually an idea. And those things never cease to amaze me as, as to how they draw you in. Well, when you draw in, it's hard to ignore. Mm-hmm. So I enjoy, in a funny sense, writing. I love, still love seeing my name on a paper or on the front of a book. That that never changes. And, you know, occasionally somebody else reads it other than my mother and that's very, very satisfying. But we've all got passions and ideas and we're all drawn into stuff, but it's just making the time. And I mean, writing a book is a big chunk of your kind of your mind isn't it It, it's true but but you can also get very um clever at how you do it i'm a great believer in you can deal with things in chunks if you finish an idea or a Mm. concept and so i'm a great believer in that i'm goal oriented i want to get things done but the other part of about it too that i think is really interesting in being able to, to do this work is not to think about these things too much it's actually to get in and do it. Yeah, yeah. And, and once you start writing, you become absorbed by it. And then a couple of little tricks I've learned over the time, I try as much as possible not to keep reviewing what I've written, but to actually move on and then review at the end. Because you can spend so much time getting back into the idea, you never actually make any progress. Yeah, absolutely. So that, you know, some simple things make a big difference. But in essence, if you don't have anything as an idea, it's pretty hard to write. That's... If you do have an idea... <laughs> then the the work begins yeah. and it's enjoyable. So, I mean, that was my, going to be my final question. You said you can't do this job unless you enjoy it. Mm. So what is it that you've enjoyed most over your career? What has really given you the most satisfaction or pleasure? I, I think I've been really, really fortunate that I was very well mentored when I came into the business. And one of the things I learned, I don't know if it was ever said to me this way, is the job of an academic is actually to produce ideas, knowledge, information, and put it out in the world for critique. And so the enjoyment is is actually that. You're testing your ideas Mm. in the world. 
in an empirical base, you're trying to say, here's the evidence I've got. How does this stack up? What does it look like? So when I talk about enjoyment, I actually talk about, you know, purpose of being an academic. And I think it's really good to have a job where you're saying, here, I'm putting this out to be challenged. I'm putting this out to try and have an influence. And where I sit at the moment then, teacher education under enormous strain around the world is right at the cutting edge of all that stuff about learning analytics, the type of data you'd put out, how compelling is it, what do we do, how do we do it, and do we do it well, not just defending our patch. Yeah, and the power of ideas as well. Absolutely. Oh, fantastic. Thanks yeah. ever so much for that, John. It's been really good to hear you talk about yourself for once. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for asking me. That was good fun. <laughs>